This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Republican Daryl Glenn hopes to unseat Democratic Senator Michael Bennett this election. Glenn is an El Paso County commissioner, an attorney, and a retired Air Force lieutenant colonel. Today, we'll dig into some of the big issues with him, health care, national security, and race relations. We expect to do the same soon with Senator Bennett. Let's begin with Glenn's view of the presidential race, though. Daryl Glenn, welcome back to the program. It is great to be here. I'd like to talk about the top of the Republican ticket and the video of Republican presidential nominee Donald Trump from a decade ago describing what amounts to sexually assaulting women. Your initial reaction Saturday was that you were, quote, extremely troubled by these comments, and I'm still praying over my open support of his election. Less than six hours later, you said in a press release, Donald Trump is simply disqualified from being commander in chief. Will you vote for him? Donald Trump did something last night that a lot of us were waiting to to hear. In in the debates. Yes. You know, I'm a Christian, a man, strong man of faith, and I have two daughters and a mother that is so instrumental in me being here. So you cannot objectify women. And he stood up and he took responsibility. Now, people can argue whether or not that was, you know, a strong enough apology, but He stood up as a man and he took responsibility for his action and he proceeded to prosecute the case why he would be a better person to serve in the Oval Office than Hillary Clinton. And we actually had a substantive policy discussion that's been lacking. So because of that, you know, I am personally going to try to get on his counter and fly out to where he's at on Thursday and have a conversation with him about a lot of the work that and people that I've been talking into underserved communities, black and brown communities that have been struggling, and share with him that story, but then extend an invitation for him to come to Colorado into those communities and set up a forum so that he can talk and so he can listen to those things because he, he made a statement that he wants to be the president for everyone. And in order to do that, you have to be willing to also sit down and talk to people and share your vision and if he's willing to do that, then, you know, I'm going to try to facilitate that. What would you say to critics who think that this is backpedaling, that this is maybe going with where the political wind is blowing? So when there was momentum behind dump Trump, you said dump Trump. Now, after what you see as a, as a good debate performance, you're back on the Trump bandwagon. Well, I guess I would respond the political winds would be to run away. I mean, if you're paying attention to what's happening with uh, going out in Washington and you're looking, if you believe in polls, the polls would say that this would be over. Well, that was your first inclination. You said Donald Trump is simply disqualified from being commander in chief. That seems unequivocal. Well, what's unequivocal if you cannot apologize and accept responsibility and if you can then also not as a candidate for office proceed to distinguish your platform versus somebody else's. And this was the first time that he clearly did that. And that's what's critical in this race. This race is more than just an individual. We're having a a battle of philosophies, and he did that. So now it opens the door to be able to have substantive conversation that's important for everyone, because whoever is going to be president is going to have to unite this country. I wonder why you didn't wait and say, I'm going to decide on Trump after the debate. I think it's important to take a position on what was happening with that particular video and get your attention immediately. 
you need to be, if you make something, a statement that's that offensive, you need to be called on that immediately. And, and that's what I did. But then you also have to take a look at the fact that there's real work that needs to be done between now and Election Day. And then if somebody's going to do what they're supposed to do as a candidate, you shouldn't have to then wait. You need to act on that and start the discussion because regardless of what side you're on, especially in Colorado, you know, Colorado's, uh, you know, Republicans, Democrats, and unaffiliated, and we have philosophical differences. And I think that we have to have that discussion. So after the uh, Trump video from 10 years ago came to light, you did uh, say through your spokesperson that you would not be voting for Trump and that uh, instead you would write in Mr. Pence's name. Correct. Let me get back to that brass tax question. Will you vote for Donald Trump? What I'm going to do. It depends on this meeting, I'm guessing. Well, because it's extremely important. Because in my opinion, Hillary Clinton clearly disqualified herself during this debate. Mr. Trump, you take him at his word, says that he is going to be able to bring this country together and he's going to be able to address those issues. So he, at the very least, deserves an opportunity to do that. So after saying that you are not going to vote for Trump, you're now saying that you're open to it based on this meeting. I think it's extremely important to provide somebody that humbles themselves an opportunity to see if they're willing to follow through with that. And that's a responsible thing to do. And I would tell people, check in with me after Thursday. You say that uh, Trump humbled himself. I suppose there, there are some who would look at the pre-debate press conference and say that was anything but a humble act. That's, that's not a man who is coming to the nation to apologize. How, how do you respond? Well, and, and, and then again, you know, we're getting into areas where people can have philosophical disagreements on the proper way to do that. My goal, again, from this point forward is let's get back to focusing on the serious policy debates that must occur. You said in your statement just after the Trump video surfaced that I, I believe that we simply cannot tolerate a nominee who speaks this way about women. And there are some who would say he has spoken ill of other groups before this, uh, be it Muslims, be it Mexicans, be it gold star families, be it veterans. Why was this the tipping point? Why was this the point at which you expressed deep reservations about Donald Trump? Well, and it's a cumulative effect, and you have to be willing to see whether or not somebody will accept responsibility, be able to then articulate what the policy issues are, and then three, if you then are willing to come back and have a discussion with these groups. And that's why I'm extending that invitation, because I, that's leadership. I mean, people make mistakes, We and if they're willing to then be able to sit across from people that you have potentially offended and be open to accepting criticism and have that discussion, that's a true mark of leadership. And that's why I believe that he deserves that as an invitation to come back, because we are a better country when we're able to work together in a very productive way. And that's what I'm trying to get us to. You are a veteran. You served in the Air Force for 21 years. And I think particularly of Trump's remark about Arizona Senator John McCain, that he was not a war hero, Trump said, because he was captured. As a veteran, do you hear that comment and think that's leadership? I've listened to all of Mr. Trump's comments with regard to the military. And he, he does show 
uh, a great level of understanding and the importance and respect of the military. I think every one of us can, can every once in a while say something that it's probably could be phrased differently. But I think you have to look at the entire body of work of when somebody's talking about what they're going to do. And words are one thing, but action is actually equally as important because you can say whatever you want, but it's what policies are you going to enact to be able to stand up and support our men and women that voluntarily raise their hand to serve this country. And what I've heard with regard to what he's going to do is going to make sure that our men and women have the necessary tools, training, and equipment to do their job, and he's going to do a better job taking care of them when they come home. And he's continuing to emphasize the Veterans Administration, and that's something that's near and dear to my heart. Daryl Glenn is the Republican candidate for U.S. Senate in Colorado, and we'll pick this up after a break with his views on reaching across the aisle. His opponent, incumbent Michael Bennett, has slammed Glenn for comments that he's, quote, running against Democrats, running against evil. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. The presidential race tends to dominate the headlines, but Colorado is also electing a U.S. senator this year. Previously, we've heard from the Libertarian and Green Party candidates. We expect to sit down soon with incumbent Democrat Michael Bennett. Today, it's the Republican, El Paso County Commissioner and retired Air Force Lieutenant Colonel Daryl Glenn. At the state GOP convention last April, you called yourself a, quote, unapologetic Christian, constitutional, conservative, pro-life, Second Amendment loving American. And uh, this phrase has come up a lot in this campaign. Uh, You have since said that its purpose is to remind people of their right to free speech. Uh, But Daryl Glenn, what is something about you that you don't think has gotten as much coverage? Well, and I'm glad you brought that up. And I'm actually glad that you're putting it in the proper context because I say that to remind people that they have a First Amendment right. I'm not saying that to tell people that you have to agree with me or that I'm trying to push a philosophy on you. I'm reminding you that we live in the greatest country on the face of this earth, and each and every one of us has to be, have the ability to be able to stand up and be bold and brave. And I think the misconception that people have, they, Mr. Bennett loves to talk about the reach across the aisle statement, and I want to properly address that. To me, it's about leadership. Both parties have basically put the other party on on defense when they're trying to push a particular issue. Let me and, say just for context yeah. that uh, you uh, said early on in the campaign that you would not reach across the aisle. Here's the proper context of that. When you're being dictated to that you have to reach across the aisle to, to do this to provide partisan cover for a particular issue, that's wrong. And it's wrong from both parties to do that. What you need to do is put the country first. And I want to be very clear about this statement. If you are willing to put the country first, I will work with anybody, whether you're Republican, Democrat, or unaffiliated. I guess I don't know what that means, put the country first. I think there's probably no member of Congress that wouldn't say they're putting the country first. There is a way, because when you're trying to use procedural tricks to be able to get things passed— Instead of trying to, and and I support trying to have as many clean bills as possible, because the fact that people are always threatening to shut down the government is unacceptable. There are plenty of things that we should be able to agree on when you're putting the country first and dealing strictly with policy issues instead of trying to advance an agenda. Now, there are issues that require a debate, 
when you start thinking about the Iran nuclear deal, when you start thinking about the Affordable Care Act, those are very contentious issues. And that's why it's warrant a public debate. You talked about um, the ability to express yourself under the First Amendment and, and um, extol what you believe are the, the freedoms of this country. In a 2015 interview on the conservative radio program, The Craig Silverman Show, you said Donald Trump's proposal to ban all Muslims from entering the U.S. is, quote, on its face sound. I just want to play a little bit from that conversation. Islam and the Constitution are in clear conflict. And you then need to default back into what is in the best interest of this country based on the threats that we're in, because we are in war, whether or not the administration wants to recognize it or not. That should be the foundation where we're developing our policies. How is it that Islam and the expression of that faith is in conflict with the Constitution? And I think the full context of that is there's a radical element of Islam that must be addressed. Is that what you say is in conflict with the Constitution? That's exactly what we're talking about. And that's why we're saying you have to properly identify those particular threats. This isn't a war against a full religion. There's a radical element out there that the entire world needs to be able to properly recognize and come up with a strategy to address. So in that, when you say Islam and the Constitution are in clear conflict, that was imprecise in that in that 2015 interview. And it's and it's in reflection of a general statement of somebody else and in, in proper context and fully fleshed out. Further discussion with that area talks about the radical element of Islam is what's in conflict. What would you most like to accomplish in the Senate if you're elected? You know, let's say that you become known for a signature piece of legislation, Daryl Glenn's law. Um, What would that be, do you think? Well, it's more than just one. It's one, I think, the best thing that you can do is be viewed as somebody that's a public servant and is actually standing up and serving the interests of Colorado. The biggest mistake that I've heard about Michael Bennett and why I spent so much time driving around the state is they don't believe that he's standing up and representing the interest of Colorado, that he's a good, solid vote for the Washington insiders and he follows what the leadership wants him to do. But when you're talking about real concerns that are out there, when you think about the impacts of what's happening with the Affordable Care Act, and Michael Bennett has doubled down on his support in light of all the information that's out there, and he still believes that this is something that we should just continue. You think about his support for the Iran nuclear deal. He doubles down on this particular support, even with all the information out there, that that's something that is causing more problems and I believe is exacerbating the threat to the United States of America. So would, you, would your, would your um, key pieces of legislation then be to repeal the Affordable Care Act? And, and replace it uh, with something. And and to undo the Iran deal. Are you saying those are, that, that's what you would want there are three to be things. known for? There, yeah. there, well, there are three things that are complex. Number one, absolutely, we have to repeal the the Iran deal. Uh, we must do that. That is not in our best interest as a country. It's dangerous, and we can talk about that forever. When you start talking about the Affordable Care Act, we've got to bring in more competition because what's happening right now is because of the way it's structured. You have that the mandate 
that is people are required to do that. I mean, there are good there are things that people recognize the pre existing conditions, being able parents having twenty uh, six year olds on there. Those are good things, but we've got to be able to create a system that allows the market to help us bring down the cost of health insurance. And you're only going to be able to do that by allowing it to grow and have market forces by competing across state lines, by having tort reform, by allowing people to create health savings accounts. Those things will actually help drive down the cost of health insurance. And what was the what was the third issue? Because we'll get into yeah. the affordable care. Yeah, and and the third issue is regulatory reform is crushing Coloradans. Uh, when you think about the war on coal, is something that's extremely important that we must. The EPA and the overreach there. There are certain areas and regulatory issues when you start thinking about what the National Labor Relations is doing with franchise owners. There are certain areas that are... The National Labor Relations Board. Yes, exactly. And when you start thinking about growing small businesses, these regulatory issues are having a tremendous impact on the ability of these businesses to be successful. The theme, in many ways, of what you want to be your signature pieces of legislation is to undo what Democrats have done. Would you you say that? The theme is to be able to actually listen to uh, what's actually happening in the field. When your people are telling you that these things are actually causing more harm than good, that's why they send you to Washington to fix these things. And we'll dig further into what Daryl Glenn hopes to accomplish in Washington after a break. Glenn is the Republican candidate for U.S. Senate in Colorado. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Let's return to my conversation with Republican U.S. Senate candidate Daryl Glenn. We hope to speak with his Democratic opponent, incumbent Michael Bennett, soon. Before the break, Glenn said one of his priorities, if elected, is to repeal and replace the Affordable Care Act, known to many as Obamacare. While he agrees with some of its provisions, he says there needs to be a, quote, more common sense approach to health care. You talk about the potential for buying insurance across state lines. Correct. And this is something that um, Republicans have talked about for some time. Some states have tried this, uh, and it actually is currently allowed under the Affordable Care Act. But because of all the different state regulations, companies haven't exactly jumped on the bandwagon here. Um, That is to say, if this were a possibility, wouldn't it have already been done? I don't think so, because there's been always a constant push to essentially federalize health care. And we really have to pay and look at markets. When you think about purchasing a good or a service, apply common sense. Is it cheaper to be able and do you receive a better quality of good or service if there are more options that are out there? And that's a fundamental principle that people need to understand. I mean, I'm trying not to make it too simplistic, but it's the reality of what's happening. But insurance you, companies have not jumped on the let's sell across state lines bandwagon. Well, they've been given assurance that they're going to get bailed out. And that's what's so offensive under the current system of the Affordable Care Act is that not only people are mandated to actually participate in this, they get fined, but then they have a safety net program where the people that are actually being hurt by the very system, taxpayer dollars are going to be used to bail these insurance organizations out. That's just offensive. To bail out the insurance companies? That's exactly what's happening right now. There's been a commitment that's out there that these insurance industries are going to 
potentially get uh, fi- taxpayer dollars to help them out because the system's not working because they're not making money. So and you, talk to, when talking to a family that's looking at a twenty to forty percent premium increase, that's just unbelievable. And uh, indeed, twenty percent is about uh, the average premium increase announced this past year. Though there will be federal help for many of those. Well, <laughs> federal help. When you go out to the Western Slope, uh, tell them about the federal help that's coming. You're talking about federal help to add more people to the system, which in turn, the only way you pay for federal help is to have money. And it, the system only works if there are people that are joining it. Young people are not joining it and signing up for the Affordable Care Act. And the people that are actually out there paying for it, fewer and fewer of them are being able to actually pay for it. So you're cutting off your ability to fund the Affordable Care Act because of what's happening with the system. It's not going to work. You uh, appear to not like the individual mandate much, which is the idea that you have to have health insurance. Um, and yet I think proponents of the Affordable Care Act would say it's the only way to make the insurance pool diverse and healthy enough, you know, that costs actually come down. So, And they're always quick to infringe upon people's freedoms and liberty. The government should not dictate to you that you should have to purchase anything. Uh, and, and that's extremely important, especially when you start talking about health insurance. And the whole philosophy behind health insurance is you actually want a product that you can afford. Because when you think about the health insurance system, you want to be able to use it so that you can diagnose potentially some conditions that if you treat them early can extend your life, that you can actually participate in wellness programs, that you should have a health insurance system that allows you to be able to tailor it. I mean, if you're at a stage in your life you're not going to have children anymore, why should you be mandated to have that particular coverage? I mean, these are common sense things that people are saying, why are we doing that? What would you do, Daryl Glenn, for that kind of interstitial period? So let's say there's a a repeal of Obamacare under a Trump presidency. There's a a moment, presumably, right, where the provisions you like, for instance, um, letting up to 26-year-olds stay on a plan and not being able to discriminate on a pre-existing condition, there would presumably be a moment where those things would be legal again. You know, you could discriminate. How do you deal with that interstitial period between repeal and something new? And this is where, you know, we can be smart as far as legislators to make sure that you you don't have that traumatic shift. And that's why it's so important to be able to not just repeal, but have something ready to go. And I think that, you know, through uh, a bipartisan process, you can make sure that that actually happens. Do you think it would be bipartisan? Well, I think if people actually realize and recognize that our current system is not going to work and it is going to fail. I think if you're being very open and honest, there are people that in Colorado, you go out to the Western Slope and they're looking at a 40 percent. There are Republicans, Democrats and unaffiliated that are feeling that pain. It doesn't differentiate just because of your party affiliation. So I think that they would put pressure on you to be able to say you need to get this done because it's having a tremendous impact on our quality of life and our ability to. So I think that the voters are going to help put pressure on. We need some immediate relief now. Let's talk about Iran and the nuclear deal, because this was really one of the reasons you got in the race, wasn't it? There are a variety of them, but this is my signature issue as far as when you start thinking about the purpose of the federal government. uh, This is something that's critical. You wrote on your website that Bennett's vote on this deal has made America less safe. 
Uh, The president says before this agreement, Iran's breakout time, or the time it would have taken for Iran to gather enough fissile material to build a weapon, was only two to three months. And today, because of the Iran deal, the White House says it would take 12 months or more. Doesn't that mean that America is more safe? Uh, No. And in fact, you know, if you're listening to the president's statement, the president also said that we weren't wiring payments to Iran. And, and and when you go back and you look at as a function of the Iran deal, he said. But what he but he was caught. If you go back and you look at the records, he was not being factual, and that's just a reality. But how and, is the U.S. less safe? I just want the get... U.S. is less safe because uh, under this current arrangement, we got outlawed, and Iran can continue to pursue a ballistic missile, and we do not have the ability to be able to go in there and do inspections, contrary to what everybody is saying. And when you think about threats to the United States, when you think about the destabilization and what we're doing and not standing with our strong ally, Israel, and how we're destabilizing the entire region by what was going on with this deal, it is not in the best interest of this country. And now that they have access to to money, uh, billions of dollars that they're using to build up their military to be used as the number one world sponsor of terror against our potentially against our own men and women. How are we more safe because of that? Because Iran is working with Korea and what they're trying to do is get a ballistic missile to be able to shoot over the United States of America and create an electric magnetic pulse and put us out of business. How how do you know this? What do you base that on? Because they are aggressively trying to do that. And that's precisely... And, and you know own. that how? I'm just trying to... What, what is your source for that intelligence? It's not source of intelligence. It's looking at their actions and what they're trying to do. It, all you have to do is project that forward. So that's a projection, doing. what you're saying. And you need to do projections when you start thinking about providing for security of this country. You need to look at your vulnerabilities. And this deal puts us in this position where we're less safe. There are robust inspections as part of this. There are not robust inspections. I mean, I like people like to try to spin it that way. But as far as being able to have unannounced inspections over the information that we need to see on whether or not they're complying with that program, that is completely false. Let's talk about energy uh, and where it comes from. I spoke to you in June after you won the GOP primary, and I asked if you agree with the majority of climate scientists who say climate change has human causes. And your response was, I'm a data guy. I want to see verifiable information of that. And it was around actually that same time that members of major scientific organizations wrote a letter to Congress urging them to take climate change seriously. And I just want to read a few lines from that. Observations throughout the world make it clear that climate change is occurring, and rigorous scientific research concludes that the greenhouse gases emitted by human activities are the primary driver. And these scientists went on to say greenhouse gas emissions must be substantially reduced. In addition, adaptation is necessary to address unavoidable consequences for human health and safety, food security, water availability, and national security. Is that the confirmation you need? There are plenty of people that dispute this. And the problem with this is we... So talk- that's not the confirmation. In other words, well, let me, let, scientists- me, let, me answer, let me answer the question. The problem is we talk with, in, in theory and, and with rhetoric instead of the world is changing. The issue becomes being able to have a consensus over man's contribution to that. There is major scientific well, consensus and- on that point. The problem that we're having right now and what 
the other side won't even entertain is that we need to have a balancing test. We need to be able to show what we are able, what we're doing to contribute that globally and what and what the United States' role in doing that. And you need to balance that with the policies that we're enacting and the impacts on families' ability to be able to afford this new higher cost of energy. Because if you're trying to do something uh, because you're trying to achieve a goal with regard to CO2 emissions and things like that, but then you're actually uh, having a detrimental impact on your economy and you're actually putting people in a position to where they're not going to be able to put food on the table, you're trying to solve one problem, but you're creating another problem on the end. And that's why I'm saying the proper way to handle that and dial back the rhetoric is to make sure that when we're having these discussions that you're looking at both sides of the equation. What I'm hearing you saying is that you believe there is some human contribution to climate change, but that that should be balanced against the effect of the measures to mitigate it. Well, am, am I right about that's that? That's what you're saying. Well, no, that's no. what I'm hearing. So I understand. And yeah. that's why instead of what you're hearing, let me tell you what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that's what needs to be debated. That's the, when I was saying that you need data. That's the quantifiable data. That's where when you start talking and bringing in scientific analysis and everything, I think a lot of people rely on data that's verifiable. That's where the debate needs to occur and to be clearly fleshed out. When you have that portion of the equation, that's when you can balance that up against, okay, if we're going to do something from a policy standpoint, we need to make sure that we're not having unintended consequences with that. So do you agree that human beings are contributing to climate change? What I'm saying right now, and I'll restate it again, is that's where the data needs to be able the, to show The data is very clear that there is human contributions. Do you agree with that? Well, data? you say the data is very clear. I don't say that. The data is clear, and most climate scientists say well, that. I just want to say I'm, and that's I'm, an I'm an a over, conveyor that's an, of facts. That's an overly generalized statement because, like you're saying that, you can bring in other people that will absolutely dispute that. And I'm saying instead but, but, of... But they are, not in, they are not in mainstream science, nor are they the ones who are with the major scientific well, organizations. I've, I've answered your question on that. You have come out against the Paris climate change deal, um, which now has enough global support to proceed. Uh, there is also the, the clean power plan. Uh, that's the Obama administration's policy intended to combat climate change by curbing greenhouse gas emissions. And you have uh, already here called it a war on coal. So I want to ask you about what coal's role should be going forward. What we should be doing is looking at all forms of energy and allowing the market to get in there and dictate. And that's what is so important because there are clean forms of coal. And we do need fracking. And a lot of people, that scares them, and it shouldn't. What we need to be able to do is Colorado is in a great position to lead. And, and Colorado should be leading the nation when it comes to energy independence. And actually, we've done a great job in Colorado with implementing our own standards. So we don't need the federal government getting in here and creating things, making things worse. Renewable energy standards. But what we need to be able to is do— Is that what you mean? We have been able to deal with these issues, but what's missing— is allowing then the market to take over. And you cannot indefinitely have subsidies to prop up one form of energy over another. There has to be a taper-off period because we're never going to get there. Because, one, number one, the market will never really dictate and come in there and do the right thing. And two, we, it's not appropriate 
to permanently fund things indefinitely from the federal government. We need to get to the point where it's self-sufficient. And so would you remove um, subsidies for traditional fuel sources, coal, oil and gas, et cetera? What I'm saying is all forms of energy, if you're receiving a subsidy, there should be, I'm not picking winners or losers. What I'm saying, there eventually has to be a point to where you are not receiving a subsidy. What about health? Because um, there was a New York Times story about how Chinese and American researchers determined, I think in August, that burning coal has had the worst health impact in China of any source of air pollution. Are you concerned about the long-term effects of, of coal on American citizens' health? You know, I think that it's it's always important to have public discussions. I don't, I'm not a doctor. I don't play one on TV, so I'm not going to give a clinical analysis of that. I think that that is a concern. Then when you're also talking about forms of energy, when you're talking about that balancing test, that's something that should also be talked about in that same conversation. And what I'm trying to get people to do is if you really want to bring both sides together and stop talking over each other, let's really break it down into realizing that we love our country, but we also need to make sure that we're not creating unintended consequences. And I think that if we all take an opportunity to just be willing to listen and have some clear discussions without dialing back the hyperpartisan rhetoric, we might be able to actually get something done. To this idea of thinking about the economic impacts of, say, the clean power plan or a a climate deal, some would say that's a false choice. In other words, if sea levels are rising and cities are being inundated, you're not going to be necessarily worrying about what kind of soup you buy that night. Uh, Do you you understand what I'm saying? Like, is, is it a little bit of a false choice to say we have to weigh, you know, the future of the planet against... Uh, potential economic impacts if you steer clear of coal. Well, here's here's my response to the false choice. You need to come with me to Route County or to Moffat County and talk about real impacts of people that are their livelihood is being shut down and they're having to pay bills right now. This is where uh, where there's a lot of coal. Yeah. And tell them that's a false choice. It's not a false choice. It's a reality. Uh, there, There are areas that have, that's been their livelihood and it's shutting them down immediately. And when you're sitting there and you're talking to people and they're crying and they're asking for help and their elected officials are not listening to them and they're not providing them alternatives with regard to, okay, look, things are shutting down right now and all I'm trying to do is put food on the table. That's having a tremendous impact. So that a false choice would be extremely offensive to people that are struggling with that on top of the fact of the Affordable Care Act. Uh, when I know of a couple that has a child with uh, special needs that is looking at insurance premiums that are going from $16,000 to $50,000 on top of looking at what's going on with the industry that they're in. Tell those people that that's a false choice. Then there's the question, obviously, of retraining. If coal starts to go the way of the dodo, What do you think that uh, a U.S. senator's role should be in helping those people find new lines of work? Well, and I believe that if you're actually allowing the market to take place, there will be more of a a tapering off period. This is why it's so important to be a representative to go out there and talk to people about other opportunities that are there so that you can then go advocate for them at the federal level uh, if that's appropriate. But what I'm saying right now, 
the the slash and burn approaches, which is what's happening right now, where you're just shutting things down and you're not looking at the unintended consequences out there in those communities. And then you're also not looking at the additional burdens that these families have with regard to the Affordable Care Act. People are hurting. Is it a bit misleading to say that the reason coal is on the decline is because of regulation? I mean, isn't the relative inexpensive price of oil and gas actually doing more in terms of the price of coal and why it doesn't make as much sense to take it out of the ground? Well, and I would disagree with that premise because you're propping up the other ones through subsidies and you're not allowing the market to really dictate what's there. Well, it's more that fracking has made oil and gas so plentiful that coal doesn't make as much sense economically. Well, and again, it still falls back to the market is going to be able to help influence this and you you cannot continue. I guess what I'm saying is the market is, and part of what the market is telling us is oil and gas is cheaper than coal. Well, and part of the market is realizing that you have other sources of energy that we have to actually adhere to and that are receiving subsidies that are being artificially propped up. You're comparing apples and oranges. So if you're really going to do it, level the playing field and then we can talk about it. We are speaking with Republican Daryl Glenn, who is running for U.S. Senate in Colorado. A few fact checks before we continue. Glenn mentioned using taxpayer dollars to bail out insurance companies, echoing other Obamacare critics there. It's not as simple as taxpayer money being shoveled directly into insurance company coffers, but more a question of shifting around funds. That happens through three programs in the health care law that help take some of the financial risk off of insurers. Republicans have called this a massive $15 billion bailout and unlawful to boot. And Glenn mentioned a 20 percent hike on insurance premiums. We should say that's true for plans on the individual market. That affects somewhere around 450,000 Coloradans. There is help for many of them through the exchange. So up next, Daryl Glenn talks about how he hopes to ease racial divides in the U.S. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Let's return to my conversation with Daryl Glenn. He's running for U.S. Senate in Colorado on the Republican ticket. I do want to talk about your uh, view of the federal government for just a bit. So you say that you're committed to improving Social Security for future generations. And uh, here's a clip from a debate you did in September, Daryl Glenn. A lot of people think that this is an entitlement. It's not. It's an earned benefit. And I want you to understand that if you are, if you've gone through that, and you've contributed to that, you have my commitment. I look at that as a contract that I'm going to honor to you. Now, Social Security is not spelled out in the Constitution. And on your website, you say taxpayer money should be used to fund only services authorized in the U.S. Constitution. Square your support of Social Security, which, you know, some could describe as a big federal program, with your view of the role of the federal government. When we're looking at all of these programs, when you're looking at the fact that we're $19 trillion in debt and growing, um, we do need to be able to, in my opinion, look at every single program and 
square it with the Constitution. And then we need to say, are they better properly aligned at the state level? Do they have a return on investment? Are they actually performing the intent as it was designed? Um, When we have programs that people were not essentially asked to participate in, like Social Security, uh, we have an obligation to honor that. And that's why I say it's an earned benefit. We should not put that in, in question. But what we should be doing is creating a way for the next generation to be able to become more self-sufficient and encourage savings. You know, there are people that are right now in that window and they need that commitment that we're going to honor that obligation. But there's a future generation that's coming forward that we can work with them and put them in a better position that they're able to actually have more control over their savings. And that's where but I'm But you look at the U.S. savings rates. Well, it's you, kind of measly. Well, that's because guess what? We're not actually growing our economy. If we were growing our economy, people had more of their dollars, and they were able to be able to do that. Uh, people would save. Isn't the economy growing? Jobs are growing, um, and in fact, the economy is where Mitt Romney had hoped it would be when he was running for president four years ago. I would invite you to a couple of my uh, town hall meetings. Going to the underserved communities, uh, the labor participation rate is what we should be looking at. It's a D. And I guess, you know, when I went to school— that, That's a great you're assigning to it. No, it's—you go to the U.S. Labor of Statistics, it's ah. a D. And that's a great concern, especially in our underserved areas. And when you start thinking about economic prosperity, people that love statistics, love to talk about the unemployment rate, you don't hear them talk about the labor participation rate because that's what's really it's important. And when it's a D, that does not show that it's healthy for our country and what we're trying to do. To trade, uh, it's been a centerpiece in the presidential race, as you know, particularly the Trans-Pacific Partnership. Uh, This is an agreement to move away from trade tariffs between the U.S. and 11 other countries. According to the International Trade Administration, approximately 3,200 Colorado companies exported goods to those countries in 2014. You've said you support free trade. What's your position on TPP? I'm against TPP. I absolutely support free trade. There's a couple provisions that I'm very concerned about as far as giving away U.S. sovereignty. I'm concerned about, I believe it's Article 27, and uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but it deals with creating a, a commission of unelected bureaucrats that are going to be able to implement rules um, without really a strong check um, by the, the U.S. government. And that should scare people. We should never be in a position where we cannot have a strong veto right I will stand up. I want to make sure that we have free trade, but I want to make sure that the American worker has a level playing field and that they're in the best position to be able to compete. Let's wrap up with a conversation about race relations in the country and relations in particular between communities and police. So you spoke at the Republican National Convention in Cleveland this summer and focused on tensions between police and black communities. And you said blue lives matter and placed blame on President Obama, calling him divider-in-chief. Give me an example of why you feel that way. And I'm I'm very glad you asked me that question. I would be disappointed if we didn't have that race relation discussion because, you know, one of the principal jobs as when you are blessed to be in that position is to create a state of calm. And President Obama has a history of picking and choosing when he's going to inject himself into particular conflicts within the community. Ferguson's a perfect example. Setting that aside, what are we going to do? Because we are more racially divided today than we were before he ran. That's a reality. 
It's not acceptable. My plan is to bring community leaders, policymaker, and law enforcement personnel together and have community-based discussions because, you know, part of the problem is we need to get to know each other. There are cultural differences. You're talking to a black man that can absolutely state unequivocally that there are problems that must be addressed. I have been stopped simply because of my skin color. That's a reality that's there. It's how you react to that as, as an issue. But it's amazing when you actually bring these communities together and you learn from one another and you break down those barriers and realize there are cultural differences and that you can show that police are properly trained to do these things, that you can empower community leaders to be able to take ownership of their community and work with law enforcement in a productive way. If you can actually go out and recruit people within their own community to actually serve in a law enforcement capacity, which gives a level of credibility there, when you're able to really get down and talk about criminal justice reform that must be addressed. And and I'm holding my party accountable to that. My party does not do a strong enough job talking about criminal justice reform. We need to do that. We need to be talking. Yeah, give me an example. What do you mean? When you start thinking about the mandatory sentencing um, guidelines, when you start thinking about um, making sure that after somebody has served their time, how they're reintegrated back into the community so that you're setting them up to succeed. And there are some discrepancies with regard to, you know, if you're, uh, you know, arrested for one substance versus another. What's unique about me is I'm going to lead in doing that. And people are like, well, what role does a senator play in that? You have a tremendous role in the fact that it's not necessarily from a policymaker standpoint. You have the ability to command and be the bully pulpit and bring community leaders together and show leadership and help facilitate solutions that come from the ground up. And if there is a federal issue that needs to be addressed, you can do that. And that's what's going to make our, you know, our country stronger. Do you think that some of the opposition to the president has been racist? You know, there's I think people automatically default to that. But I would say, look at his policies. His policies, in my opinion, are out of step with what's in the best interest of this country. He has more of a globalist view. And I don't think that that's healthy. It goes against the American spirit. But when you look at like the birther movement, you know, and um, Donald Trump's longstanding campaign to uh, essentially say that the president was not born in this country, like, do you think that's racist? To me, it's it's completely uh, something that's inappropriate. But you pick one thing, but I think people say, look, I don't care what color he is. Look at the policies that he's supporting. And I think the vast majority of the people don't care what color or what sex the president is. What they care about is the policies. And if you have a globalist view and you're completely trying to transform America, that's where people are pushing back. And I'm telling you, as a person that's been out on a campaign trail, his race is not even a topic of discussion. It's the policies that he's supporting. And Michael Bennett is in lockstep with those policies. That's where the rub is. Daryl Glenn, thanks so much for your time. It is an absolute privilege to be here. El Paso County Commissioner, Attorney, and retired Air Force Lieutenant Colonel Daryl Glenn. He's the Republican candidate for U.S. Senate, challenging incumbent Democrat Michael Bennett, whom we're expected to speak with soon. One more fact check. Glenn said the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics gave labor participation a D grade. 
We could find no such report card, and we have a request in with the campaign for its source. Labor force participation, so how many people are working or actively looking for jobs, has been on the decline, but it is not at a historic low, as some Republicans have claimed. Why has it been declining? Well, factcheck.org cites an analysis by the Congressional Budget Office that the unusually low rate is attributable especially to the aging of the population, temporary weakness in employment prospects and wages, and the slow recovery of the labor market. A quick correction. Yesterday, Colorado's Deputy Secretary of State misspoke when she said a write-in candidate for president would need to file an affidavit 15 days before the election for votes to count. That actually must be filed at least 110 days before the election. That's Colorado Matters for today, with special thanks to producer Stephanie Wolf. I'm Ryan Warner at CPR News.